Welcome to Gatekeeper, a podcast about booking from the bookers and gatekeepers who decide who's in, who's out. Also, there's other stuff. And now your host of Gatekeeper, artistic director of the Hollywood Improv, Jamie Clam. Hey everyone, this is a Gatekeeper. You're listening to it right now. It's a podcast. It's it's a good one. Why is it special, you're asking? Well, let me break it down in three parts. Number one, I have an amazing interview with Jeffrey Golden and Amanda Meadows. They run Devastator Press, which is a comedy publishing company. And I was excited to have someone, some people from this realm of the comedy world on the podcast. The second thing I love about this episode is the topic of comedy publishing, comedy books, magazines, etc., When I think about all the things that have inspired me and and got me into the comedy world, comedy books were a huge part of it. I remember being a kid and going over to my aunt, uncle, and cousin's house, and they would always, in their bathroom, have those Garfield retrospectives, The Far Side, School as Hell, and Love as Hell by Matt Groening, all pre-Simpsons, and I would spend hours just pouring through them, and I thought they were so hilarious. And of course, as I got older, you know, finding back issues of National Lampoon and Mad Magazine and Cracked and all these things. I think it's an awesome entry point for people into the comedy world. And it's an art form that I'm really excited is still going strong, especially in today's digital age where there's not as much happening in the publishing world, but they are really trying to trailblaze and get people back to the world of of comedy books and magazines and, and other stuff. So getting to learn about this world from Amanda and Jeffrey and how you might get into it was really interesting. And the third and final reason I am excited about this episode is that we have two new sound effects that we're going to debut today. So we're going to get to those, and then we're going to dive right into this interview with Jeffrey and Amanda. Enjoy the episode. Funny sound go up, 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 up. Funny sound go down, 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 down. I'm going to be honest, in, in 12 episodes of the show... Uh, with some of the most inspiring interviews uh, with some of my favorite comedy people, that comedy sound (laughs) first going up and then coming down are my favorite moments in this podcast so far. So there's gonna be a lot more of those. Andrew, Andrew's our producer. Andrew, what what do you think of the new uh, sound effects? They're, They're great, Jamie. He loves them. And you're gonna love this episode. Here you go. Gatekeeper episode 12. Gatekeeper. Welcome back to Gatekeeper. I have before me two very special guests. Men Meadows and Jeffrey Golden. I thought you were going to say sexy. I got really excited <laughs> that for a was... minute. Two sexy guests. <laughs> it's like, yep, finally. I was going to work up to the sexiness. Well. But there is a vibe in the room. I'll put it like that. Where... <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. No, it's, like, it's uh, with the leather couches and the... Sort of uh, the red mood velvet li- curtains, yeah, velvet yep. curtain, mood lighting. Yeah, I'm feeling and the, it. The, the yeah. loving vibes that you you bring well, with each other. Aww. This is very true. Let's hold hands during this <laughs> interview. Well, Exchanging so long protein strips. <laughs> you guys have a partnership in a beautiful thing, which is called the Devastator. This is true. Yes, and I'm excited to have you guys because this is the first time we'll be talking about the exciting world of comedy publishing comedy publishing yeah, and likely the only time yay <laughs> well we have a mad magazine coming next week and oh, cracked crap. oh that's very great good. Oh, this is like a part of a whole run of uh publishing and they're not really coming but oh no. you could <laughs> yeah it's totally doable 
I'm you not, can get them. Yeah, we know we know a number of uh, writers and artists for Mad, and I contributed to Cracked in its early days. Yeah, so somebody the rebirth, the rebranding of Cracked. Well, it was yeah, it was Cracked soon after it was rebranded as a website. Right. Um, with uh, with my friends Asterios and Joan, and we wrote some articles under the name Overtime. And uh, but I remember at a convention. Somebody, I guess I had said that I had written for Cracked, and someone was like, "What's your name?" I'm like, I'm "Like Jeffrey Golden," and that guy, he like ran through his head database and is like, "Beep boop, beep boop, boop." You are not a Cracked contributor. <laughs> I know every Cracked contributor. You he are not one wait of to those. Call someone out on something. He was waiting for his opportunity. I know. To correct someone. It's so weird. But yeah, yeah. but but uh, so yeah, I was like, well, it was under a pseudonym, and it was a long time. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that, that overtime brings back memories for me. And let's just go back before we get into the whole publishing thing. Yeah. And this is about so the Devastator. If you want to surf online while you're listening to this episode, go to <laughs> Devastator Monthly. <laughs> Quarterly. <laughs> Devastator Press. There we go. Yeah. Devastator Press. DevastatorPress.com. Dot com. Um, but I've known Jeffries for over 10 years now. This is very true. And at that time, I think he'd probably just graduated from college. Yep. And had moved to LA to pursue the dream. Oh, the dream. The big dream. What was the dream at the time in, in the mid 2000s? The dream at the time was, uh, to, if I'm being uh, perfectly honest, was to create a doomsday device to make <laughs> everyone my slave. Uh, the dream was uh, writing for animated uh, TV comedy shows. So uh, to write on on a Futurama or at the time or Simpsons or some a show like that that was the dream. Is and is that dream still a dream? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's one of those things where um, I have been doing what I've been doing for a while now, and I love it so much more. And uh, I love it so much more than what I imagined my life would be if I was writing for animated TV show. Um, one thing that you don't realize until you talk to people who write for television is how much a lot of people hate writing for television. <laughs> um, they they don't realize that it's just like any other job that you have a boss who doesn't appreciate or understand you. And uh, you have to work super late hours and weekends and uh, sit in a sweaty room and eat Chinese food. And if you're lucky, you're one of three to five shows that people actually love and talk about. Uh, Otherwise you're saying to someone, Oh no, my show is on TBZ. You can get it if you plug your television into a special satellite. That sounds you know. pretty cool, actually. Listen, I we're actually, you know, I was trying to, uh, we are actually developing a show for TBZ, so, <laughs> so I shouldn't talk. But um, we are, uh, you know, what Amanda and I have built is something that reflects our sensibility, yeah. our humor, and, uh, you know, we get to decide how late people stay you know and work and what kind of uh, asian food what kind of asian food provided sometimes we go thai doesn't always have to be chinese guys it's a whole lot of korean people yeah (laughs) and uh yeah get to shape this whole uh i mean what we do is really cool i mean we're the only all humor press in america 
So we're the, we're the only publisher that is really just consistently publishing alternative weird comedy books. And we can sort of, we have that corner. Like that's our corner of the world. And that's really cool. Beefdoms. Beefdoms, you know. And people now know, you know, we get a lot of, we actually just ended our proposal season. So we do things a little differently than a lot of traditional publishers. So um, a lot of publishers accept proposals all year round. We have a very select season where we look for them for the year. And uh, that season just, just ended. And we get so many submissions from people. It's wonderful. It's really cool. And it's just, it's fun to think like, oh my God, like we have, so much choice and we have the luxury of, of, of so many talented, uh, wonderful writers and artists uh, wanting to work with us. And it's super cool. So let's take that step back. So, what, so tell us exactly what is Devastator Press. Amanda, Amanda, Amanda what is Devastator Press? I, what, I keep hearing about it. <laughs> uh, so Devastator Press is, uh, is just Jeffrey and I really, and about, eight to 20 other really hilarious people who work with us on a regular basis. Um, We started with an anthology series called The Devastator. And that was kind of a a different time for us. Like when we, at the time, Jeffrey and I were both comedy writers and we were writing for like websites, um, you know, doing like weird freelance stuff for like, Websites like comedy.com. Comedy.com. Yeah, I like in- Listen, you know comedy.com is going to be funny. <laughs> They've got comedy, comedy in the, the URL. Comedy's in the name. That's uh, their yeah. name. That's their that's their namesake. You can't say it's not comedy. You can't. Uh so yeah, things like that. Or a lot of like dumb projects that, you know, either would never see the light of day because the small company that hired us never got to release it, or it's something disposable on a website that what are you going to do? Point to that, <laughs> you know, five years from now. And- it got 2000 digs. Yeah. <laughs> it was on the front page of dig.com. All the digs. Where all the immortals go. I mean, like all half the, Im- the stuff I've done before 2010 is not even on the internet anymore. Like you can't find it. And yeah. It's like, that's crazy. It's, I don't want to just to, to do too much of a sidebar, but I will point out, they always say, that you do something on the internet and it lasts forever. <laughs> right. But that's only true if it's something that is embarrassing or something that you right. wouldn't want to share. If it's something that you're proud of or that you put time and effort yeah, into cool with. and you're cool with, yeah, th- those things disappear from the internet. Right. You can, <laughs> you can't find them anymore. Yeah. You'll get, you'll get a go daddy little, like right. somebody owns this domain. Right. Guess who? Uh, so yeah, we, we were kind of at a time when we were like, Oh, like we've been writing a long time and it would be great to sort of take a little bit more creative control and be able to do stuff that we just want to do. Um, things that we think are funny, get our friends involved, do like some weird collaborative project. And do it in the, the burgeoning world of print media. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Yeah, and this at the time, I mean, you know, zine culture was like just starting to kind of come back. Um, people were starting quarterlies. Um you know, in this sort of like post McSweeney's time where it was like, if you had a niche, you could do something that was, you know, maybe topic focused. Like at the time there were a bunch of quarterlies, like there was like a, a cooking quarterly that had come out called remedy, remedy that yeah, was remedy. like really popular for a while. Um, so there were like a lot of these little things that were percolating and it seemed like the print scene was kind of having um, a moment 
or a moment to be. And I was working at a publishing company in LA at the time called Phoenix Books. Um, and they did a lot of really big books for celebrities um, and some literary fiction that we were trying to like sneak through. Um, and we were trying to get more humor books through and it was really hard. Um, and nobody was really happy there. <laughs> um, and Jeff and I coming up with the idea of like doing some weird zine was like this really nice refuge for me because, um, you know, I'd go to a publishing company every day where people were just kind of making things because they felt they had to. Um, and we could make something that we actually wanted to do. So creating your own platform. For right. Your ideas. That's amazing. And so what year was this? That, that This episode? is like 2009. 2009. Yeah. So, uh, so it was started as a as a zine, but it quickly grew in size in terms of uh, the scope of it. And what we landed on was a quarterly. It was uh, going to be a 50, 60 page uh, full Old color, color uh, book of comics and comedy. So very much influenced by, say, the 70s National Lampoon or by right. Classic Mad Magazine. Yeah. Um, but uh, with a geeky twist. So we, we knew that. Um, we needed to have a spe- more specific audience. Back in the 70s, you could have a national humor magazine, right. but there's really no such thing as national humor anymore. No. There's nothing that, that uh, everybody can get behind. And we, we sort of knew that one of our main channels of distribution was probably going to be comic book conventions and comic book shows. Which is a shows. world we already knew. Right. Because <laughs> we, we were already going as fans. Like, I'd been going to San Diego Comic-Con since I was a little kid. Um true. And, you know, Jeff and I are just big nerds to begin with. This so is true. It was no. really easy to, like, work off of what we knew. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Why would you feign surprise? You can, <laughs> clearly, my pocket protectors are clearly visible. <laughs> <laughs> pocket protectors. They should bring those back. I was thinking about that the other day. It's yeah. a good idea. Are there ironic pocket protectors? There has to be. I mean, isn't a, isn't owning and wearing a pocket protector in 2016 just irony in and of itself? Does one yeah. like? But like, what about like designer pocket protectors? Oh, it's a real man. thing. I had a pen explode yesterday. There you oh, go. No. Pocket roan. You're a grown ass man who needed a, <laughs> who need, could have used a stylish pocket protector. You're an LA resident. Where's uh, where's Urban Outfitters when you need them? Where's yeah. uh, you I'm know? sure they're already being developed <laughs> in, a, in a lab somewhere deep thousands of miles below the surface of the earth. <laughs> like we need new uh, weird pieces of clothing <laughs> to get trendy. Yeah, this is a pocket protector tangent. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, let's stay on it. Let's stay on right. it. Yeah, right. this is the pocket so cast. All, it's a really practical piece of equipment for your clothing. Like, Agreed. Why is it so nerdy? Just the idea that someone would have a pen on them at all times I is like so. super nerdy. It's like, oh, you're literate. That's gross. I think it. I think it's the kind of. I think it says something about the a person who is that well prepared. Yeah, you know. I think I, it's that's, preparation that's is is not cool. It's you want to live be somebody who lives off the yeah. seat it, of their pants. Is this <laughs> pocket gonna get destroyed by ink or not? Uh, who knows? James Bond yeah. doesn't care. You know, uh, Troy Aikman doesn't care. <laughs> These are we the see, coolest James people Bond in America. James Bond has a nerd Q right. to think of all that for him. He cares. Yeah, he cares. Q is going to be a nerd. Right, he's a nerd. He's super prepared. We don't get to see Q bang any chicks. No, um, with good reason. Yeah, I, I kind of want to. He's too prepared. <laughs> <laughs> see, that's something, that's something to consider. And tangent over. Tangent over. We did it. We did it. Successful tangent. So we made this uh, book and we, uh, this uh, prototype in issue one, and we put it on Kickstarter. 
and uh, we funded it. And it had yeah. a lot of really cool people in that first issue. We had uh, contributions from James Urbaniak from the Venture Brothers. And, and Dave uh, Malky of Wondermark and Topatico. Yeah, some really cool folks. And uh, and we kept making them. Yeah. Um, so, uh, <laughs> we were foolish enough to keep going. <laughs> we were foolish enough to keep going. So so 13, we, we did 13 issues of it. And that is very unusual uh, in the world of modern day print quarterlies. Yeah. Like, because 13 is bad luck. Oh, no, because uh, because <laughs> because most of them end at two. Right. Um, see, the problem is that uh, and the thing we didn't really realize is that we had kickstarted for a first book, but a quarterly isn't a book. It's no, it's a quarterly. treadmill of of resources coming in and out all the time. And we, yeah, we weren't really prepared for that really, but we learned quickly in the yes. moment. <laughs> it was, it's true. We had to learn how to operate a business. Yeah. And that wasn't something that I think either of us fully realized going into the yeah. project. It's kind of like when Bart Simpson was like, yeah, we're just going to live like Swiss family Robinson on this island. Right. <laughs> yeah. It, it was just like, yeah, we'll figure it out. We're going to like, we're going to hang out and, uh, make uh, make instruments out of coconuts and it's <laughs> gonna live our dreams. But no, there were a lot of a lot of practical uh, business things that we had to learn. So one thing we learned is that uh, in the Kickstarter universe that we live in, an anthology is a really good sell online um, because if with a Kickstarter, a lot of different people are involved. So a lot of different people can ask their moms and dads for right. money. You're building a barn. Build yeah. But you're yeah, but in seriousness. Um, yeah. Having a lot of different people involved in the, uh, in the project means you can get a lot more, the word out a lot faster and you could potentially get more donations where it's not a great seller or bookstores. Um, and, our anthology was even weirder than a lot of other anthologies to the average reader. So uh, the, a typical comics anthology, something like, say, womanthology, has a very simple and direct purpose. It can be easily understood. These are all comics that are written and drawn by women. And if you like women and you like <laughs> and you comics, should. <laughs> and you should, and you like comics, you will purchase this volume of comics and you will right. donate to its Kickstarter or you can, you could pick it up at a bookstore. Um, with the devastator, it's stranger to people. They, they, we realized taking it to comic book stores, right. they would look at it and they would say like, well, what is this? Is this comics? It was, a, is, is this, this all done by you two? Did you two make this? <laughs> like, yeah. Common question. Even though, I mean, there's obviously drawn in Did you see different no styles. shoots, no shirts, no service policy. <laughs> <laughs> Continue. I'm sorry. Oh yeah, no, no. You are. You that is true. The uh, there was many times when I wanted to kick people out of our booth. <laughs> please leave. Yeah, please leave our booth. <laughs> You're making me so tired. Um, yeah. Well, there's yeah. There's like tons of different styles and writing and lots of different design elements all coming together um, under one theme. And you flip through, and it's it's you know it's like you have an article and then a comic and then a short story and then a comic and right. you know a fake facebook page and a comic um so, so, so there, it was a little confusing to people because they had, our generation didn't have that reference point of national lampoon and stuff so and they we had wouldn't to sort of teach them what that was and they no people didn't really think about mad magazine you know um and when they think of mad magazine they don't think a book they think no, they of think a, about a magazine for, for kids for kids right yeah. a magazine for children 
So, um, so we had this problem, but we did one thing right in the design of the, of the anthology series, um, which is that we had, uh, and our starting with our second issue, it was a weird fluke. We, we had a, a, an article that wasn't, it didn't, the layout wouldn't make sense. Yeah. It, it was really a it funny was, article. It was, it was a, a, it was parody a, of, uh, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. And uh, it was done by, uh, Dan Dominguez, really funny guy. And yeah, it didn't quite fit into the layout. Like we had an odd number of pages and it wasn't quite working out. And I think we were talking about it and I was like, have you ever seen those double-sided books? Right. Um, and it's like a thing that used to happen a lot in the fifties. It was called a do-si-do and you could flip it over and there'd be two books in one. Um, and so we just sort of said, well, let's take this piece of art and make it the back cover and flip it over. And then we could just put like one page in between the two stories, in between the uh, Devastator Anthology and that story, and that would solve the problem. Right. And it was just to solve that one problem, and we didn't really think that, oh, we could do this every time. Um, but it was really popular. What we realized, what we, what we slowly realized over the course of the anthology is that more people were <laughs> paying attention to the reverse covers than they were to the front covers of the book. And uh, in many cases... The reverse book was the reason that the people were purchasing the anthology book to begin with. So uh, right. a couple of years ago, uh, two or three years, I guess probably 2012 or something like that, or at some point, we started we started to realize this and we started putting out uh, individual humor books. So, for example, yeah. we had one that was very popular in our fantasy book when you flipped it over. Uh, it was Wizards of Cockblock Forest which is a real game that you can play. Uh, everyone plays as a wizard and you have to cock block each other with magic spells. So people were buying the fantasy issue to get this manual. So we thought, well, why don't we release just a standalone version of the manual right. with some additional material? And it did very well. Um, and what we realized as we were producing more of these little humor books is that more people were interested in buying the little humor books than they were in buying the anthology series. Yeah, I think, yeah, the single concept mm -hmm. is really grabby. It's like, oh, this is, you know, if I like gaming, here's a weird, funny game. I'll buy this game. Right. Why not? Well, and you also, so so the anthology books were themed. And so yeah. we had we had some conception of this where, you know, okay, like if we theme a book around fantasy, we'll get people who like comedy in general, comedy humor books in general, and we'll also maybe get people who are more interested in fantasy. And perhaps some of those hardcore fantasy people will learn to like the series and they'll stick with us through other themes. And we did science fiction and we anime did culture, anime and all sorts of yeah. different things. Um, and that didn't really happen. Um, it does definitely, the anthology had like a small cultish fan base, but I don't think it was because of that. Um, I think the people who, like, especially like anime is a good example. Mm -hmm. Like the teenagers who are super hardcore into anime, like they're into anime, like that's right. their thing. So they'll buy your anime book, you know, but they're not necessarily going to stick with you through a mystery theme book right. or whatever. Right. So um, what we, but if you have a parody of Dungeons and Dragons, Somebody who loves Dungeons and Dragons will pick that up and buy it. And that's an, that's a, an uncomplicated transaction. <laughs> you know, you, you, uh, you know, you have a game night. Uh, this is a fun 
thing to play, you know, is in between campaigns. And here you go. Here's right. the, here, well, I mean, here's, a, here's a sale. And sale thematically for the show, I mean, I think we talked about a lot with a lot of the guests is uh, getting with that with you is like you followed your passion. You made it, you put it out there and it took 13 episodes to get to what it is now. Right. That's right. Yeah. As is the case for anyone in any creative pursuit. Like, yeah, exactly. We did the hardest possible iteration of what we wanted to do before we got to what we are doing. Uh, and I feel like we're better for it because um, we built our contributor base this way with the anthology series. We kind of figured out what our, what our sensibility is. Um, and we were able to like take all those people who enjoyed the anthology series with us. And though that cultish fan base for the anthology comes to our booth now you know this year and they see all these new books and they're like well let me grab a bunch of these because i i know i know i can trust you guys <laughs> well i think you guys you're creating this great new uh or not new but certainly um something that we haven't seen in a while but a uh, platform for comedy writers um and so let's talk about that for a minute you, yeah. see, you have this stable of writers and you're getting submissions so you are publishing Yes, this is yeah. true. <clears throat> and I'm sure you see all sorts of stuff. Yeah, and it's funny how, how that happens. I think a lot of gatekeepers kind of come into it as I want to make a, a place for me and people I know to do stuff. And, um, you know, inevitably as things grow, you know, you get to the point where, yeah, you really are working as a gatekeeper and you're kind of raking through things. And Yeah, I mean, you have to curate, especially in publishing, like in these small things. <clears throat> sift through all these ideas and, and pick what you want. Yeah. And we have an interesting process for doing that. It's not entirely uh, Amanda and I. We, the, the, so when, uh, so our submission window just closed. So we got a, a ton of submissions. And what, how did, how would people know about your submission window? Um, they could, uh, they would go to our, it's, kind of, it's sort of like a thing where you just sort of have to email us right. and send us your uh, samples of your work. Um, they can find that on our yeah. website. So they, yeah, they can find our email on our website and then, yeah, they just email us, introduce themselves. Um, we like it when people don't immediately get into the business of this. I've got this great idea for you. Right. You know, it's just like, well, Hey, like, let us get to know you. Let's read some of your older stuff that you've published elsewhere and let's talk. And then if we, if we think it's a fit, we then put them on a list. Right. Yeah. And, and so it's, so in that sense, we're not just developing a lot of publishers are, are we are here to, to, to produce, produce a book, right? We consider ourselves more like we're developing the talent, you know? So what we like to do is have new talent start by writing zines. So uh, we produce, you know, five to seven zines a year. And there are these small, you know, five and a half by eight and a half black and white. You know, if you, if you remember the classic zine culture, From you know, like the seventies or the nineties, you'll yeah. know what we're talking about. Zines what happened in the eighties? Uh, the eighties, there were zines, but they like, they kind of got left behind. They're like, Although there was one of our one of the, the zines, I think that was inspired the Devastator. That's true. Army Man. Was, uh, yeah. was an Well, there's zine. also, um, uh, Nancy Reagan's famous uh, "Say No to Zines" <laughs> <laughs> campaign that uh, might have affected it. That's true. That's very true. Yeah, she really hated zines. I don't understand. <laughs> they, I guess, just too many people cutting out pictures of her and putting mustaches on and xeroxing mm -hmm. them next those to big devil horns. Stippling machines were dangerous. Yeah. yeah. The um, so we'll get somebody. Um, so we'll have a list of people who, uh, which we'll curate. And then we'll say, we'll give them a prompt. We'll say, 
hey, you know, we're now looking for we're now looking for submissions from the 2017. Right. Here's a guide to what we're looking for. And we update our guidelines document each year with, you know, new information. We like change our we have a lot of like illustrated examples of what we're looking for and and things that we're not looking for, too. We give good examples of those, too. And so we update that every year and uh, so that everybody knows. What's That's going right. on? And then we, we have a proposal form, which is uh, basically simplifies the process of uh, of a pr- book proposal for uh, comedians <laughs> and uh, <Right>. cartoonists <laughs> who wouldn't uh, want to be writing 30 page proposals. And frankly, we don't want to be reading 30 page no. proposals. Mm-hmm. What we want to know is, is this is this a cool idea? Are you funny? And does this idea like work? Give us a sample. Like, does this idea work, you know, as Within a premise? Within the production framework that you're suggesting it should be in. Right. Yeah. And who is it for? Like, Who is going to want to read this? Because it's all well and good to say, like, this is a funny book. Like, we're going to produce something that is funny. And I don't think uh, I don't think we've ever produced anything that was not funny. Yeah. <laughs> um, but we have produced things that aren't uh, commercially viable. Right. Sure. And, <laughs> And, uh, you know, that that happens. I think that's part of the deal is like you you take risks on stuff uh, that you're not sure about. And you hope that a handful of them kind of knock it out of the park and some of the other ones will be supported by those few that do really well. Right. Um, like, I mean, just in general, the, the material that we do, no other publisher would publish. I mean, we're mm-hmm. we, we have friends at some of the East Coast, like real publishing houses. Right. And it's very different there. Um, like we were kind of in a sort of partnership with another publisher um, who we will not name, but um, where we were possibly going to co-publish a couple of things and they chickened out because it's like their world is a little bit higher stakes and they want to do things that they think will be more broadly uh, palatable. You know, like uh, we couldn't do, we don't think you're racist at a big five publisher. Right. Um, And this is a, this is important to us. And we, you know, we sometimes think of ourselves as the uh, adult swim of the publishing world. And, you know, adult swim is not for everybody. Um, not, you know, it's not for, you know, you know, you're the whole family to sit down and watch, uh, you know, a dog puking, you know, on the decapitated body of, <laughs> you know, of a Satan worshiper. You know, right. that's not for everybody. Um but the fact that we admire the that programming because it takes such they take such risks, you know, and I think humor books, especially there's this problem where they get boxed into that that thing of like, hey, can we make a book for everybody? Like every humor, pub, every publisher of humor books like makes very similar sort of books. Right. There's a lot of there's definitely a lot of templates that they use. There's the book about cats, you know, and we've, look, we made a book about cats. It was a little, I think it was, it was a little weirder, a but... little weirder and edgier, but you know, we've done it. Um, we get, we get why every publisher makes funny books about cats because people definitely, it's like catnip, you might say, for cat owners. Or Garfield and Heathcliff. Oh yeah, those guys, oh, yeah. those guys are pretty badass. Yeah. The, um, We're working on a Tijuana Bible with just Ethan Garf. <laughs> Ethan Garf. Going on adventures together. <laughs> anyway, but yeah, Garfield. So there's there's the comic strip collection book, right? Like now it's I think more maybe more web comics, but 
yeah, it's like these things were popular online. And so we're going to take that work and and cash in and take that work and put it into book form. And hopefully fans of the, you know, the webcomic or whatever will purchase it as a book. And that's perfectly fine. Um, But it's not what we're interested in doing. It's not fun. To us, we we're here because we want to create stuff that is uh, a little transgressive, that is weird, that is, you know, stuff that you see it and you're like, oh, I never knew that this could be a book, but now it is and everything is different. (laughs) Why don't you give two or three examples and you see some of your new stuff here? Yeah. So this is, this is a perfect example here. I'm going to, I'm going to plug Amanda's book here a little bit. So, uh, so we don't think you're racist, which is a book for uh, white people who are concerned (laughs) that they might be racist. So as you can see, I'm just demonstrating for you. So on every spread, there's a picture of a smiling person of color. And then on the opposite side, there's a little positive phrase here to sort of give the reader a good feeling. So, oh, yeah. Very so, much meant to soothe people. So here's one. So this is our friend. Uh, this is... Uh, the, wait, uh, this is Danielle Radford Thank on that you. page. This yeah. is Danielle Radford. Super funny comedian. She's a super funny comedian. She is a black woman. She is smiling at at the reader. And on the opposite side, it says, you've dated three black guys. I guess you are blacker than me. (laughs) (laughs) Your voice reading it is perfect. I know. It's really funny. There's another like, like, wow, what are you? That is a deep existential question. Now, you know, there's, uh, this is not a. And things get pretty specific too. And yeah, it's, it's definitely about throwing back those the things that people hear on a daily basis that kind of chip away at your sanity <laughs> as a person of color. If I asked you not to do that funny accent, I'd be taking away your freedom. You know, mm-hmm. the, these are uh this is and and people come up to us so they this book has been our number one bestseller at a number of comic book conventions that we've been to uh, right. recently. And since it's it not a out. comic book. <laughs> and it's not a comic book at all. It's not about pop culture, really. It's about something that's happening in culture. Yeah, it's um, just about people. And society. Yeah. But uh, people come up to the table and thank us for creating the book. They buy multiple copies. They um, there's There are some people who get in, in tears. They're laughing so hard because this is an experience that, a lot of people have, you know, and it expresses something that, frankly, other publishers, they wouldn't make this book. They're too book. afraid to. Yeah, um, they, they think this book is too controversial, but it's, you know, they're targeting a very specific type of consumer, you know. Yeah. And, uh, and we think that there are uh, that there are audiences out there for transgressive and interesting humor beyond, uh, you know, the, the. Well, it sounds like you've already established that there absolutely is. What's that? It sounds like you've established that there is an audience. Oh, absolutely. Oh, 100%. Is this, yeah. and, um, is this your full-time gig right now? Is Devastator? It's like 90%. Yeah, yeah. we do it. We certainly do it a lot. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's like we, we eat, sleep, breathe the Devastator. Yeah. Um, we do some and, other things on the yeah, side. We do some freelance writing. Um, Jeff wrote for uh, Disney Princesses Comics and yes. for Sesame Street Comics recently. This is true. Um, we both have done a lot of copywriting because that's a nice way to make a lot of money very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> but it, and, and so is the ultimate goal to 
make this full time. Oh, of course. You're yeah. so close. 10%. Very close. Well, no, very, yeah. it's, it's, we it, don't have investors or any of that fancy stuff. Right. Um, so this is all, I mean, this is what we've gotten to now is from six years of literally pounding the pavement and making every dollar that comes in pay for the next project that gets made um, and letting it snowball from there. So we're really proud of the organic growth that's just come from 100% reader support. Um, well, it sounds like uh, the the convention circuit is, is a, an integral part of launching this. It, it, it certainly yeah. has been. Um, it was an easy way to sort of learn, uh, like, like with trial and error, like what clicks with people and what doesn't. If you're just making books from an office, you know, in a vacuum, and then they go to a bookstore and you don't really get to see how that experience plays out, you miss like a big part of how your book's talk to people so yeah Uh, though lately um a larger part of our business has been um distribution to uh bookstores to indie bookstores yeah talk about that i mean that's i think the giant gatekeeper in publishing world is or any product world is how do you get it distributed right and it's certainly how do you get this into car washes so great question great question (laughs) so uh, i i don't know how to get it into a car wash soon but someday (laughs) The uh, God help, God willing, we could get it into the to the. Uh, I want to be right next to the fancy lighters, like the ones that look like a gun and stuff. Not Ooh. next to the air fresheners. I feel like that's a prime primo spot. The air fresheners I usually like get lighters right at the are counter. Flashier. I don't know. Listen, we, we also can, the bl- we can have our merchandising quibbles later. Yeah, guys, think big. Armoral. Armoral. It's <laughs> a good point. A Top shelf, point. baby. Yeah, I like it. <laughs> the um. So for years, we struggled when we were with the Ed doing the anthology series, we struggled to get distribution for it. And uh, there's a really good reason for that. It was a book, but it was a small trim size, but it was, uh, you know, a paperback book. Yeah. And uh, we tried to get magazine companies to distribute it and they didn't want to distribute it because it doesn't fit the standard magazine right. size. It's too and- much like a book to be distributed as a magazine. It was too much like a magazine to be distributed by a book distributor. You yeah. you try to talk with book distributors and they don't want to talk to people who run magazines. They want to talk to people who have a full list of varied titles, of, of varied books. So we were sort of stuck in this weird place. We couldn't really get distribution for the books. Yes, yeah, so we, hand- we were self-distributing. Um, so we were, you know, maintaining multiple accounts with independent bookstores and comic book stores. We have like a really awesome guy, Tony Shenton out of New Jersey, who uh, is like his whole life has been devoted to championing like small presses and, and being like an independent distro for them. And so he's helped us get into a few more stores um, back when we were in anthology. Literally, Um, literally the week that we ended the anthology series, we struck a deal with a major distributor. And that was crazy. Yeah. Like we had spent, <laughs> it we happened had so quickly. We really struggled for like five years to try to uh, get distribution. And once we had it all kind of happened proper, once. yeah. W- once we had a proper, once we were a proper publisher with a list, um, all of a sudden that door opened and people were interested and we, we signed a deal and well, now, congratulations. well, thank you. And now yeah. it's really cool. I mean, there's, we're in bookstores that we would never have thought we could, we would be in. There's uh we were we just sold a bunch the distributor just sold a bunch of copies to MoMA 
That's my of uh, <laughs> of one of our books, which yeah. is really cool. Yeah, it's Just cool can't to be wait. In the MoMA gift store. Yeah, yeah. I, can't, I cannot wait to uh, to go t- to New York to see that. I think that's really yeah. We're cool. pretty much we're like in every major uh, like really cool bookstore across the country, like in you know Seattle and Portland and Chicago and DC and Austin and yeah, just like all all of our like favorite stores across the country and many that we've just like been like oh will never be sold there right. like, <laughs> like strand bookstore like now carries like all of our current stuff in the front of the store so it's just really it was really nice to see yeah super cool yeah just diving in and i think i think of jeffrey uh, you know first meeting you and asterios and and those guys and you just always did what you loved oh well, yeah which sounds almost like a dig <laughs> Uh, yeah, you just did what you, you just did what you loved no, against the advice of your parents <laughs> and elders. But no, I remember. I mean, sketches he performed um, that were so niche and and so <laughs> yeah. parroting something so specific. Um, and it was the timing seems to be perfect for, you know, with what was happening with the internet and um, that everything was primed. And the world, I, I believe, just really opens up for you um, when you when you follow that. So, I want to know where. Where do you come from? Yeah, Amanda. Oh, yeah, Amanda. Uh, yeah, it's pretty boring. I well, I didn't really go through all the comedy like wormholes like like Jeffrey and a lot of our friends did. Um, I grew up in Southern California. Um, I went to small school in Southern California. I went to Orange Coast College and then Vanguard. Um, and I just I, I worked in retail marketing when I was in college, and that kind of prepared me for 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 some of what was to come, but, um, I always knew I wanted to be in comedy and I always knew that, um, publishing was also another option. Like I, I, um, majored in film TV like Jeffrey did. Um, but I halfway through switched to English. (laughs) I kind of chickened out halfway. I was like, I don't know. Um, cause if I, I wasn't sure if I'd go back to grad school or not. So, um, then, uh, I, I did a lot of freelance writing. Like I did um, like a bunch of dumb stuff for websites. Like I, I used to like uh, hang out on a special thing a lot. And uh, on uh, so there's this comic book writer, Warren Ellis. He had a message board back in the day. And it was like, it's also like where Matt Fraction and Kelly Sue DeConnick met. Like, it was, you know, I was just like write a bunch of dumb stuff there. And I there's some very it. deep cuts. Yeah. Deep yeah. cuts, deep cuts. And um, I did some interning for, uh, like various websites like uh i did some some like ghost editing for uh for like ghost editing? yeah um and uh yeah i i just i i wanted to like move to la and just like kind of get it over with like i didn't want to go through like ucb as much as i loved ucb i went to like all the shows there but i didn't want to like go through classes i knew i didn't want to be a performer so it didn't really feel like necessary um so i kind of learned how to write in the academic track. <laughs> um, and so I, I got a job as the publicity uh, manager for Phoenix Books, uh, which was at the time the biggest independent uh, book publisher in America. And they were based in Beverly Hills in the Gersh building. It was very weird sort of be making books and then you go to the elevator and like Justin Long's in the elevator and it's like, we once, Who makes uh, books this way? We were once getting lunch together and uh, we were getting hot dogs and uh, Larry King came in and was like, oh, where's my Kanish? 
I need my <laughs> need my knish. Right. They say we've got your the knish right the here, Mr. King. The owner of the restaurant like runs out, Mr. King. Here's your knish. Like, great thank you <laughs> his hand, he like, his hand yeah. and he's gone yeah uh it's so weird to make books in like in a place that's just surrounded by tv and movies like you couldn't like make books in that environment i felt like it seemed really crazy to constantly be reminded of people on tv and in movies and that informed a lot of the books they made i mean there there were a lot of vanity books like we actually did publish like most of Larry King's books <laughs> for a period. He was and in the neighborhood. He was in the neighborhood, exactly. And um, uh, my my favorite was uh, we we did a bunch of re-releases for Carl Reiner's books, so I got to do a lot of like cool stuff with Carl Reiner. That was like a real dream. Justin At that Long's point, cookbook. <laughs> yes, I can't wait. I can't wait to to dig that out of my my old Phoenix Books box. Uh, um, and like uh, at the time, we were we were already dating Jeffrey and I, and so I got to like. Where get, do you two lovebirds meet? Um, oh, we met at a Halloween party in two thousand eight. Yes. Yeah, were you? It was, like, it was a comedy party. <laughs> comedy Ghostbusters Halloween party, and. Uh, the, the, I was dressed as the Swedish chef. Yeah, I was not in costume. I almost didn't even go to this party, which is crazy. It's so funny to me to think about it now that like this guy in a Swedish chef costume was like hitting on this this like beautiful like per, like regularly dressed girl. <laughs> like it must have been like a weird scene, <laughs> you know. If you're just looking at it, it's like, oh hey, what's going on? Well, and even weirder was I was in. I was waiting for the bathroom with my friend Crystal House, who was uh, dressed as Sharon Tate post massacre. Uh, oh, jeez! <laughs> and it was it was a beautifully done costume. Oh, it was, yeah! But it was disgusting. So it was like, <laughs> a very weird scene. <laughs> um, but yeah, like I, I got to introduce Jeffrey to Carl Reiner, and that was like really cool. That was but, cool. Like, well, because I had listened to the two thousand year old man. You know, I was a that's huge how you fan grew of up. it. Yes, I definitely was a was a comedy kid yeah. growing up. Um, I, but especially of comedy of a generation before the generation that I was supposed to be listening to. Right. So I listened to a lot of comedy from the 1950s and 60s. So I was really into Stan Freeberg, uh, Bob and Ray, the Jack Benny, Joe, like just a lot of like older stuff that nobody, I, I had to introduce people to it. Um, these, Which is cool. It's like cool it's to cool. be that person. Um, I I grew up as like, I was definitely a transgressive kid of my time. Like I stayed up late. My parents didn't really pay that much attention to what I watched. So my brother and I were watching Beavis and Butthead when it was airing. And um, I watched Late Night with Conan O'Brien religiously, um, you know, from like its inception through now. And, you know, like all of those really weird, crazy, absurdist bits like really informed my my sense of humor and I grew up on strangers with candy and yeah. stuff so like and it wasn't until like late high school that I started going back in time and like enjoying um you know like old radio stuff and um things like that I was also I I considered myself a bad reader <laughs> in school um I had a lot of trouble reading books uh, but i realized that now because like with like reading lists and stuff like that like i had a lot of trouble but then i I realized looking back i actually had a lot of books i actually did a lot of reading but it was all humor books that didn't count that schools you know won't count like you can't do a report on sign language you know (laughs) or you know that and i had like every comedian's book like i was the one you know 
I, probably some of them are embarrassing now. I, I think I had like every Dennis Miller book. Right. I think I had Joe Esterhaus's book, you know. I probably had Victoria Jackson's book. If she ever released a book, I probably owned it. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, and, and yeah, just thinking about it now, it's like, oh yeah, I know I read all the time, but I just, I was reading like comic book collections and, and people are like, that's not literature. Right. Well, You're you, not reading. Yeah. I mean, that's You're how filling it, your head with garbage. Well, that's how it felt. And then I would try to get through things fall apart and I would be super bummed out and I wouldn't want to read it because it made me <laughs> sad, you know? So that's, I think I definitely, you know, yeah, my, my love of humor books definitely uh, from an early age, uh, I was reading them. And I would, I remember uh, that I would do chores for my sister to get her Garfield books because I loved <laughs> the Garfield books. Those, those, you know, the rectangular of collections. Course. Yeah. That was, I mean, I think, and it's something I don't give enough credit to for me as far as my, you know, comedic influences, but those Garfield books were on my, cousin and my aunt and uncle's toilet and I would yeah. spend hours on the toilet. Yeah. And but it was that. And then the far side, of course, and, Absolutely. um, you know, Matt Groening's first book, school is hell and love is hell. And Bloom County was big for mm-hmm. me. I yeah, love the Opus important. books. Yeah. Calvin and Hobbes. I think yeah. that there's a certain, there's a thing about Garfield that makes it, it's, it's one of these things like Billy Joel and the Olive Garden. That's just really fun to make fun of. <laughs> And it's just this perennial reference and admitting that at times Garfield has been great, like legitimately great, sort of ruins, shatters the illusion, you know, of that, that it's this eternally mediocre thing, which is what makes it so funny. Right. This like populist kind of mediocre broad. Right. You know, you it's know, kind of yeah. weird th- thinking about spending hours reading through a whole book. And I don't even remember because it's been so long, but I mean, it was generally... You know, the tropes. He wants lasagna. Yes. He doesn't yeah. like Mondays. This is true. Yeah. And look, this and and those things are all ridiculous. Why does a cat not like Mondays? It makes no sense. Cat doesn't go to work. But um, <laughs> this is this we know. But um but, you know, Garfield went Hollywood and that was amazing. That was That's great. True. The uh Garfield and Friends TV show was very meta and, and fun. There's uh there's quite a few really good uh, there's there is def- there's Garfield uh, his nine lives which is legitimately amazing it's uh Jim Davis stretching it's like the only time we ever see really see like Jim Davis attempting other styles of art yeah and, that's true and it looks and uh, you know the the it looks amazing the book is is amazing it's, the premise of the book is that we're seeing his nine lives. And one, he's like a laboratory cat that's being tested on. And another, he's, I think it was a Viking cat or something like that. But there's these like short stories, like Garfield yeah. short stories. And there's really cool, you know? Like, yeah. I, you know, I like the, the Garfield tangent. Yeah. Yeah. We'll Garfield ta- tangent's we'll, important. We'll so, take it. I, yeah. Well, Garfield's Nine Lives did like inform a lot of like what we thought of comics and stuff. Um yeah, all a long way of saying when I was at Phoenix Books, yeah, uh, <laughs> like I learned, I learned kind of, I learned uh, the ropes of publishing, and that's that's how I learned how how editing works. Um, you know, at the time, uh, the amazing editor in chief is now an editor in chief at Counterpoint Books. Uh, Dan Spatanka kind of took me under his wing and showed me how publishing contracts work, and showed me, um, you know, how 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 to negotiate. How do how do you manage authors and take them through 
um, a, a process. And I was a publicity manager, but I was also kind of learning how to be an editor um, as sort of like this sort of minor to my job. And, you know, I, I learned how to manage authors through really crazy times. And I booked uh, book tours and all kinds of really crazy events and uh, learned how to get authors onto television shows and on, you know, podcasts in the early podcasting times. And yeah. So it's like, it kind of trained me for, you know, being able to do a lot of publishing things at once. I think that's, that's such an important lesson for anyone, but especially in, in comedy, like you, you forget when you're doing your day job and you're, you know, it's a Monday. Right. <laughs> yeah. But, um, you know, that you're, you're always learning. And I think, everyone I've talked to on the show, like can look back on that path. And even though at the time they didn't necessarily understand it, they see that all will eventually, not all of it, but a good decent chunk of it kind of pays off in the end. Like in unexpected moments, you kind of realize, Oh, I've got some knowledge to fall back on. Totally. And it's all going to inform what you make next. So what do you guys see as the future for devastator and for, for small press? Do you think it seems like from the outside that, you know, publishing, especially niche publishing, it's really finding an audience. And in reaction to this now just digital age that people still need, you know, to flip some pages. And I think yeah. also in reaction to, you know, a lack of diverse ideas and talent in mainstream publishing. And right. those, Small those presses are just where all the new ideas are being formed. Right. And then the bigger publishers kind of start poaching them, right. so, you know, over time when they see what, what becomes popular. A hit. Yeah. yeah, then, yeah. They, then they take it. Like Go the Fuck to Sleep was made by a small press. Yep, it sure um, was. Yeah. The uh well I would say what's next for Devastator is as always, we will be publishing uh one one new thing every month. Yeah. For the conceivable future. Sometimes it's a zine, sometimes it's a you know, it's sometimes it's a book, sometimes it's a comic. Yeah. And sometimes it's uh, a novel. Sometimes it's a novel. Yeah. And uh but, but it's always novel. <laughs> um <laughs> And uh, we're just going to keep making books. I mean, that's yeah, the- And keep the, introducing new people yeah. into the fold, too. That's kind of the magic of the the system that Jeff was describing before. Like, we're, we've got this stable of people who've been with us for a really long time, but every year we're bringing new people in and giving them an opportunity to experiment with us via zines and then giving them an opportunity to then, you know, make something bigger. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, we're we're- you know, just looking to to more stores, more people, more readers. I mean, we yeah. we, we chipping th- away at that rock. We're chipping away at that rock, yeah. And uh, in terms of the future of small press, that's a good. That's a very good question. I think there's gonna be there's only gonna be more small presses. Yeah. Um, yeah, you can't really tamper down how many small presses there because more people mm-hmm. have things to say and and more people find themselves alienated by the main you know, sausage factory system of the big five. You have to be at a certain pay grade to even get noticed by them. And that's kind of demoralizing for a lot of people who want to make books. So just make the things you want to make by yourself. The, um, yeah, I mean, the, what's crazy is that in, you know, this day and age, uh, you can, if you have a manuscript, you can publish it yourself on Amazon and you'll have a huge audience for your book. It's yeah, pretty you, remarkable. Yeah. If your book is good and you, promote yourself just enough things can hit yeah well this <clears throat> such a great platform that you guys have created and I, I think there's a lot of comedy writers and comedians that forget that there's the other outlets for their talents right and yeah. it's better to diversify if you can but um 
for comedians or anyone that's listening to this podcast, where do you think is a good starting point? If you go to your website, what book or books would you recommend? Gloria? Uh, good question. I think a lot of our recent stuff gives you a good sense of like what we're doing. Um, like, I guess like of the tape, like the books that we just left on the table here. Um, I would say, well, my book is a good example of a lot, a lot of like, like the, the, the kind of thing that you could get into a lot of major bookstores. And then, um, one of my favorite books we did was restart me up by Leslie Cena. Um, who's hilarious. I believe she was on The Long Shot. Yeah, she promoted this book on The Long Shot. Yeah. Um, We're promoting a, it again. Yeah. Why not? Get it again. Double dipping. That's right. Um, and what is it? Just lay out the concept real quick. Uh, so it is a fake oral history of the making of Windows 95. Um, it's a great exercise in um, playing with a format. The oral history is kind of a format that's been really popular on the internet and in books. Um you know, like live from New York. Yeah, live from New York. World War Z and, and stuff. everything on the AV Club now is oral history. So it was like something, it was a format that was ripe for parody. But then we also got to satirize tech culture, um, the boom uh, philosophy of the 90s, um, and also just kind of the mediocrity of, of like what like software and entertainment was like in the mid 90s. And I, I think. Leslie got in at so many angles and uh, it's just a really funny book and it's really fast to read. It's like the perfect example of the kinds of things that you can achieve with, uh, with, you know, a mass market comedy book. We, we like to think of our books as almost like sketch comedy shows in that yeah. sense. You know, it's like you, you might go to a theater like, uh, like the improv lab or, or some such and see a comedy show and maybe like a sketch comedy show. And, you know, that sensibility is definitely the sensibility that we want to bring to books. And it's something we don't see enough of. Like a lot of humor books that are released are, you know, it's, this is a single, it's basically a single joke played a bunch of times yeah. and that can work. You know, we've definitely, we've done books like that and we, I think we've, we've done them a little differently and maybe a little cooler <laughs> um, but, um, but we also like this idea of, you know, like that kind of zany sketch comedy world building, right? you know, satire. And we do, uh, it is worth noting that we do satire pretty much exclusively. So we don't do autobiographical humor, really. We, we don't right. do like, we don't do like essays or essays or really like things that are just straight absurdism. Mm -hmm. Like we do, we like to do things that, uh, turn heads that uh you there's know there's some kind of grounding premise to the book that relates to how we like live today there's right. always something to the kernel that like stay at home scarface is about gender politics at home and about um being a stay at home dad um to the height of you know what if scarface a, was a stay at home dad and that's a color a scarface coloring book yeah yeah, yeah. so it's also making fun of activity and coloring books there's a lot all the all the activity gags are kind of like fuck used to activities <laughs> in fuck books. Fuck you, coloring. Um, yeah. yeah, and like like the word searches have words in them that you're not supposed to find, but are very funny and kind of tell you how we feel about <laughs> word searches. Um, so like there's so many things going on in the book that if you read every page, you will get rewarded, but you can also just kind of look at it uh, as a cursory object that you find entertaining and just get the, the surface value, and that's still funny. Um, so we we try to kind of get people at every level that way, and then with our zines, it's I mean I would I would recommend looking at things like the Drama Sutra by Paige Weldon, 
uh, and Enemies of 20-something Mega Man by Asterios Koknos and Paige Weldon. Um, great zines, and they're about, like, a simple concept. Like, the Drama Sutra is about all the unspoken feelings you have while having sex. And um, the Enemies of 20-something Mega Man is just, here's a bunch of Mega Man villains based on the shitty dudes that we all know in L.A. <laughs> right. Like, these, are, these may or may not be based on, like, comedians that... We all know in this room. <laughs> we, we, we do one, and I'll see if I can guess. Okay, great. Um, Without naming see. a name. Uh, casually brings up his celebrity friends, man. Yeah, I know that one. Yeah. <laughs> a few of those. <laughs> Dover Grace. <laughs> Dover Grace. Uh, How about uh, nonchalant cocaine use, man? Oh, yeah, that guy. You know what? I don't know. Oh, I'm like the worst for detecting cocaine. <laughs> I can't really tell either. Yeah. But I, I just I, I know, sort of assume that half of the people yeah, I, know I know have done it. I know who it's based on. and Oh, uh, yeah, you do. <laughs> yeah. And that guy has interesting parties. <laughs> I'll, say, I'll say that. I'll say that much. Right. Uh, so, yeah, like those are some good ones to look up on our website. Uh, uh, Jeffrey, you can At say the website. You love doing that. Devastatorpress.com. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, thank you guys for joining me. Oh, thank you thank for you having us. I'm hoping that um, more new people will learn about this and hopefully open their eyes to the books. To books. Books are books are back, baby. Treat yourself to a pizza every time you read five books, like yeah. you did when, like, in elementary school with the book it. That's what we recommend people do. Yeah. Remember that book it? No, I don't remember pizza being involved with reading. You would get. Yeah, you would trick kids get, to read by, uh, it was the book it program. It was sponsored by Pizza Hut. And uh, if you read enough books. They put stickers on your pin. Yeah. You had a pin that had five like like places for uh, stickers. And yeah. if you got five stickers on the pin, you could bring the pin to Pizza Hut. You get a free a, personal pan pizza. It was a personal pan pizza. So what I recommend. Tiny pizza. I recommend that people read five of our books and then treat themselves to a pizza. <laughs> for reading them. <laughs> I wonder if we could get like Domino's to sponsor. That would be amazing. Wow. If Domino's. They're uh, like, I'll give you like a Cinestick. <laughs> <laughs> a left, a Cinestick from the dumpster. From that our Cinestick dumpster. <laughs> That would be amazing if, if Devastator partnered with Domino's. Uh, yeah, that's kind of the dream. Domino's <laughs> that's, that's, my, that's my new goal. <laughs> well, um, as I end every show, work on your craft endlessly. Be a professional. Be undeniable. And like my guests today, be cool as fuck. Always. Ah, you're cool We're AF. Yeah, cool people. <laughs> AF. <laughs> that's what you say now. He's so hot. He's flammable. Damn. Ooh. That's a nice <laughs> little like out. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you. For more episodes of Gatekeeper, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find me online at jamieflam.com and at jamieflam on Twitter. A very special thanks to the Sideshow Network, the Hollywood Improv, Andrew Steven, Sean Merrick, Roddy Swearingen, and producer Buddy Peace for the awesome music at the top and end of this episode. And be sure to check out hollywood.improv.com for updates on great new shows coming up in the main room and the lab.